Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Zion. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts the Restoration offers for today's world. Project Zion is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. Hello, and welcome to the Project Zion podcast. My name is Carla Long, and I am your host for the series Percolating on Faith, a series designed to discuss topics related to faith. Our guests for the podcast are always two of my favorites, Tony and Charmaine Chevala-Smith. Yay! Thanks, Yay! <laughs> welcome back, you two. Thank you so much for Thanks. continually showing up. And I, I've actually been speaking to my boss, and we're going to start doubling what we pay you. <laughs> Whoa. We can hardly wait to get that check. With that and a dollar twelve, you can get yourself a hamburger, right? Well, not at any place good, but you probably can get this hamburger somewhere. Um, today's topic, from what I hear, is um, we're going to be discussing the this idea of the one true church, an idea that Community of Christ had in the past, although that has kind of, and no, that has definitely gone away. But I can even remember in my childhood that people were still talking about the one true church and how Community of Christ, then RLDS, was the one true church. Um, that was in the early 80s or so. And while it takes a, wh- a while for things to trickle into Kansas, <laughs> when, how did this idea get started and how did the Community of Christ kind of move away from that? Hmm. Those are really great questions. And there's like a historical side to them and the theological side, and personal sides as well. Experiential, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I, scriptural, too. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, biblical, definitely, definitely a biblical side to it. So maybe a place to start is to start with the origins of the movement that Joseph Smith Jr. began and its context. Yeah. You know, um, if we look at the area where, where Joseph's family was, the um, all the talk about what's sometimes called the burned over district or the, an area that had been had a lot of uh, religious activity over the space of oh, I don't, a decade or so uh, where there's a lot of co- competition between various both denominations and groups um, some that are not identifiable yet as denominations but there's a lot of um, preaching that's going on, and the reason I call it competitive is that in some ways, um, preachers would have seen this as a as a field ready for harvest, as, uh, as many people had left um, behind, whether in their, in the, as they immigrated or as they moved across the country, left behind um, more um, predictable religious life and ties to particular de- denominations. And there's this all this ferment of new ideas and new ways of understanding God in the sense of a nation creating itself. And therefore, that, that comes over into views of religion. And there's new movements everywhere that are trying to reimagine and live in new ways. Um, this this primary story of Jesus of the kingdom um, so so it's a, it's a great place with a lot of potential and a lot of people who are both distancing themselves from organized religion and also longing for connection and so this this several sweeps of groups coming through with the Kent meetings and their um, promises of salvation and highly, uh, often highly emotionalized um, experiences and and worship, um, which was which both served as entertainment and also as um, warning <laughs> for people to to get saved before they die of some deadly disease, um, which were pretty common in that time. So there's, there's this, that's part of the context is these 
many different denominations, many different people trying to prove that their view is the most accurate. Their view is the one that leads to salvation. The kind of experience they can provide is the one that can assure you that you are good with God and that your eternity is um, is established in some way. So that's a whole uh, atmosphere of dialogue and debate between different um, religious um, mostly here Christian, different Christian voices. And so proving who is the best and the truest to the original story was a, a sport in the time. <laughs> what, what Charmaine's describing is the, the period in American religious history called the Second Great Awakening. And it's typically dated from about 1790 until roughly 1850 or so. And it's this period of like really uh, – uh, vigorous revival activity that, that starts in the period following the American Revolution. And one historian I like a lot, uh, uh, Nathan Hatch, wrote a book called The Democratization of American Christianity. And so in this, in this culture shaped by the American Revolution and the Constitution and all of that, there's this new sense that the individual, the individual is free to figure it out for themselves and needs to be free from from the remnants of old religious tradition that that are now viewed as uh, kind of binding people down. And so that's part of the context. Another part of the context, as you look back into that era, all of these all of these Protestant revivalists, um, and this includes the people connected with the origins, the restoration with, they all had, a working assumption, an assumption, by the way, that turns out not to have been right, but it was their working assumption, and we have to understand it for what it was. Their working assumption is that there must have been an original Christianity, like the original real thing, the original recipe, we'll call it, <laughs> and and that you wanted you wanted to recover this original recipe. One of the problems with this assumption is that the Bible they all turned to didn't support that idea very well because you could argue a Presbyterian model of church organization or a Methodist model of church organization or a Baptist model or even a Roman Catholic model. You could argue all these models of church organization from the Bible, but that didn't seem to face people. They all assumed there must be an original, and you have to have the original to be in some sense right with God. Um, to have the, the the right blueprint means that you then have the right and true church. So that was one of their working assumptions, that there's this one true thing that Christianity started off with, and you have to get back to it, and that the Protestant Reformation didn't do a good enough job getting back to it. Right, and, I, and this was often called primitivism, and I think we've talked about that a bit before, but trying to comb through the New Testament and create a picture of what the church looked like. Um, and probably in our movement, we would have said what the church that Jesus established looked like. Um, of course, again, Jesus didn't establish a church. Um, the church grew up around those who believed that his life and death and resurrection was something special and it didn't get separated out from Judaism for, you know, another 40 to 50 years. So, um, but they didn't know that. <laughs> and so they're looking for this. What is the, what is the truest representation of what it means to follow Jesus? And if we can do it like the first century followers of Jesus, then we've got it right. Mm, yeah. Uh, so it, it was a matter of actually several levels. There's a, if we could have the right offices. Um, so, you know, they're again combing through the scriptures to say, well, there was bishops and there were deacons. Well, and, but there were also elders, you know, in some places. And um, so they're trying to use all of these bits and pieces to create um, the right offices, the right 
structure for authority. But they're also trying to um, pick up vestiges of, well, what, what does it mean? What are the things you have to believe to be as close to that early church as possible? And so among different groups, there were the, the battling, I call it the battle, battling lists. So, you know, you have to believe, um, you know, in the, in the virgin birth. You have to believe in certain things about who Jesus is and how his death or his resurrection brings salvation. And there would have been, you know, some nominations would have held up some, others would have held up others. And so there was, it began, began to, to feel, and, I, and our movement uh, certainly inherited this and carried it on, that your status with God was determined by whether or not you had the right list of beliefs. Um, I don't know, I think yeah. that's a, a, so there's those, there's the, you know, what does it look like? Do you have the proper structures? Do you have the proper authority? Then do you have the proper list? And so maybe one thing we can add in here, too, is that um, Joseph Smith Jr. had this this experience as a teenage boy in the, the Grove of Trees in New York State. And, of course, there's six different accounts, six different versions of this vision. And as you as you read them from earliest to latest, you know that he you, you can notice that he develops the story as it goes. In the latest version of this account, um, uh, which is the 1842 one, the whole story becomes a story about restoring the original church. And I think that's the story that lots of Community of Christ people grew up with. I'm sure lots of Mormons grew up with that story, too. It's, uh, it's that... This experience in the grove was about getting back to the original church and that nobody else had it. All their creeds are an abomination to God, et cetera, et cetera. What's really interesting is if you look at the earliest account that Joseph wrote. Um, in that earliest account, which is the least affected by like subsequent developments of the movement he started, um, what he describes is more like a conversion experience. Very classic frontier Protestant revivalist conversion experience in in which he's struggling with personal sin and struggling with the sin he sees around him. And in the earliest account, Christ appears to him, and it's really about the forgiveness of his sins and some kind of sense of calling. It does not have anything much to do about restoring a church at that point. So that, as as he... As the church that he begins unfolds, as he develops it and changes it, then in subsequent retellings of the story, the idea of of how he's there to restore the original church uh, becomes more and more important to the story. So I might also add that in what for Community of Christ people is Doctrine and Covenants section one, there's this statement that Joseph makes about about this being the only true and living church upon the face of the earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. And so this whole culture, this whole set of assumptions about getting back to an original, and the, the, there must have been a right, a right starting point. There must have been a perfect structure at the beginning that somehow got corrupted and that Protestants did not fully re- recapture. That's, that's where... That's where the one true church idea basically finds its origins. So, gosh, what I'm hearing you guys say, well, first of all, let me just say, Charmaine, what I found most surprising in what you said is that people used to go to church for entertainment. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm just kidding. It's super fun. Everyone should come go to church. It's fun. <laughs> kind of, kind of um, hard to believe these days, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, not community of Christ, at least. Uh, there's just a little plug for community of Christ, but... You know, it just sounds like what they were trying to do was kind of one-up each other, right? And say, well, my church is better than your church because, and my church is better than your church because. And so people were kind of vying for followers in some ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if 
if you could have that combination of um, convincing use of script, convincing use of rhetoric, and convincing experience, you had a pretty powerful tool to have people follow your way of thinking or your personality or your um, denomination, if it was, or group at any rate. So, yeah, yeah, it was, um, and it was entertainment because, um, well, except for the offering, it was free, and, you know, you could, you could, the, the whole community would often come out when they came around with their tents, and so you might, you, you might learn some things about your neighbors you didn't otherwise know, so if there was, you know, confession as part of the service, so. <laughs> and, and what's not entertaining about regular threats of hell and damnation, Carla? Right. Gosh, I can't think of anything better. <laughs> and perhaps a few people being slain in the spirit or overcome by the spirit. So You're the, right. the revivals were like the revivals were like the worlds of fun of of the <laughs> you know the frontier. So I I do remember a com a, a cynical commentator speaking of the revivals said uh, that and this is a, a contemporary of these revivals said that. Sometimes as many souls were created as were saved at revivals. <laughs> wow. In, in the fervor. Hinting at what else was going on. <laughs> How interesting. Yes. Oh, that's so awesome. There, yeah, so this is kind of it. It's almost a, a bit of a contagion, though. You know, when one person or one group is trying to prove that they're right, um, the defensiveness of others or the offense, you know, taking the offense uh, for others to then prove that theirs is, you know, more right. Um, and which means either tearing down the other's view or uh, providing a more convincing kind of uh, approach. It, it was all part of it. And when you get caught up into that cycle, then it's hard to disentangle and step back and say, well, where might God be in all of this? Mm -hmm. And that that doesn't happen for a while. And and nobody is really aware of or asking questions about the assumptions everybody holds in this mm -hmm. particular context. Um, about scripture. About scripture. About the original recipe. About what Christianity is and isn't. Um, these are frontier Protestants, and I include the Joseph Smith family there too. These are frontier Protestants. And they share a widespread set of assumptions about about the Bible, about religion, about that they all pretty much agree that Catholicism is evil and that somehow uh, it doesn't represent true Christianity. And and they also all share this assumption about getting back to the original. Plus, in this democratized environment in the United States, say circa 1800 to 1830, they they share a belief that the individual is able on their own to figure all this out. And I think, you know, for better or worse, that, that turns out to have been an, uh, an assumption that's, that's um, very deeply written into uh, American religion. Um, I call it the roll-your-own approach to Christianity. <laughs> and, Tony! And they all... <laughs> They they all they all assume that the individual is able to do that, able and competent to do that. And, it, and kind of back to the to then groups trying to dis, to convince individuals that that theirs was the the best. You you start out with you know well we have the structures or we have the offices that would have been in the earliest church and you know here throwing scriptures back and forth to show that you have um, the proper structures. And then uh, within our movement, there was the, the next step of proving that you have the one true authority. And so um, Joseph not receiving his authority, his ordination from um, anybody from his time, but receiving it. Um, from or from um, people from the past, basically. The John the Baptist John's, story. Yeah. 
Uh, well, and same with with uh, yeah. So so here's a, a, a newly established source of authority that is um, unquestionable in a way. And so for our movement, that sense of we have then it's we're the only ones who have priesthood authority because it comes from an unquestionable source from not this time but from a past time so the idea there was to to do an end run around thousand thousand you know, fifteen hundred years of, of tradition and that that somehow would get you back to mm -hmm. the original way better so so yeah so then then you have to conclude that we are the only ones who have proper authority uh, our priesthood are the only ones who have authority to to baptize in a way that brings salvation or that brings uh, effective connection with God. Um, our priesthoods are the only ones who are authorized to ordain the next generation of priesthood. Um, and, and so that then is like the ultimate argument, argument against other denominations because their, their very ministers are not authorized uh, or not properly authorized. So other churches have been wrong from the start. That, that became very quickly the assumption of the early Latter-day Saint movement, that, that this was a whole new thing that was getting back to the original that nobody had been able to recover because it needed to be recovered somehow, well, I'll say, magically by divine revelation. Right. That was the only way it could be recovered. And, and either that other denominations, what authority they had, it was either perverted or diluted. Um, perverted over time because of abuses of priesthood in you know whatever age they wanted to point to, or diluted of its rightness over time. And so this was like a new infusion of authority um, that nobody else had. So let me back the clock up historically just a little bit to say that a lot of what we're describing is also, I'll call it leftover business from the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and I think these, these frontier Protestants in this democratized environment, they, they really did not know a lot of what we call church history, meaning the history of Christianity. They knew, they knew their traditions, they knew their Bibles well, they knew their current experience, and they knew this and that about Martin Luther and, and other reformers, but they really did not know the history of Christianity. And so as you, as you back this clock up to around 1500, you see that once the Protestant Reformation got started, the, quest, the, the question of where do you find authentic Christianity uh, had been on the table for, you know, 300 years before Joseph Smith's time. Thus, there's a proliferation of denominations and groups, each trying to articulate what they see as authentic Christianity. So the people on the American frontier inherited this, this uh, long tradition of trying to get back to authentic Christianity and, um, did, did so in an environment where they didn't really know anything about the development or evolution of the Christian faith from this, the early second century on. So that's an important piece to the puzzle. I was actually thinking that. Um, I have stood at the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg and thought about Martin Luther hammering those 95 theses up. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about that and how new it was in 1790 when the... Um, when the Second Great Awakening started, Protestantism was only it was less than 300 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, that sounds like a long time, but it's not a very long time when it comes to religions, right? The Catholic Church, like if you were a Christian, you were going to be Catholic, and it had been around for, what, 1,300 years? A long time. <laughs> a long time to get all those right. And also, the Protestants were rebels, Right. So like they're always trying to question authority and figure out things. And, and in some ways, the Second Great Awaken, Awakening might have been like a, another rebellion against Protestantism. Or did I overstate that? I don't know if I no, did. I think, I think it's, I think it's just a, fur, a further, <laughs> a further rebellion, a further revolution. An echo, mm -hmm. almost, and almost an echo of the Reformation. But again, done, done with a set of assumptions that 
eventually will turn out to have been not not very helpful assumptions. And so, you know, that will in our in our uh, discussion, we'll get eventually here to um, how did community of Christ find its way out of this whole pair this whole one true church paradigm because the you know the the problem with this one true church paradigm was that everybody was saying that theirs was the one true and they had no um, framework within which to see Christianity as something more than a collection of the, the right beliefs and structures um, it was very very hard to see Christianity as something larger than their own particular version of it. It'll take it'll take a while for for that to happen. Well, yeah, let's let's move on to that conversation. Not necessarily the community of Christ part now, but um, what does it mean to be the one true church? And I'm just going to go ahead and show my bias here, and I'm going to ask the same a question of how is this idea damaging? So what does it mean to be the one true church? Like what do churches who believe they're the one true church believe or you, you know what I'm asking and how is this idea hurtful? Well, let's let me just let me do let me back the historical clock up even farther on that one. So the idea of truth in Christianity of course is important. I mean it's right right from the start. Um but the if you if you go back to the second century, third century, and fourth century of Christianity, you'll discover that Christian communities had to identify themselves over against alternatives, over against um, Judaism, over against Greco-Roman traditional religions, over against a phenomenon called Gnosticism, and so. They developed ways to say to talk about themselves as the holy universal church, and then when you get to the the fourth century to the Nicene Creed, into the creed is is written the statement that the church is one holy Catholic slash universal and apostolic church. In other words, what makes the church Christian is all of these things, and the primary thing that they're trying to articulate there is that the church has to stay anchored in the Jesus story as it was passed on by apostolic tradition through scripture and through liturgy. And so the idea that there is a a true form of Christianity versus aberrant forms was there from the second, third, and fourth centuries on. So it's a it's a very old idea. And you know in the in the time frame, um it was it was a very useful idea because, for example, forms of this this I, this uh, religious movement called Gnosticism really had a view of the created world which said it was a mistake. It did not come from God. It came from an inferior deity. That the body was bad. That materiality was bad. That Jesus was not incarnate, but but uh, was it wearing a, a human physical disguise and that everybody who believed who could believe this particular version of the story was in the know and everybody else was ignorant. That's Gnosticism, and the church said that's not really the Jesus story. And so that was okay in its context. But the idea of being the one true as it develops through history does does have some other side effects, and that refers to what you're calling uh, damaging side effects. Well, I think one, um, and it's probably kind of obvious, but it would be – that if you're spending all your time trying to prove that you are the one true church or the one true way of thinking, what becomes the focus is yourself and and your group. Um, and so it's pretty easy then for the, the actions, the sacraments, the liturgy, the beliefs of the church to become the primary focus. Uh, what you preach about, what people spend time talking about, and it's really easy to forget that it's about God, it's about Christ, it's about the Holy Spirit, it's about um, the kingdom of God, it's about God's desire for all of creation, not just for us who believe this one way, who think that we're righter than everybody else. Uh, so it becomes very... Um, it focused on on self or on the denomination or or sect, and so um, 
that's I think spiritually and um, emotionally a huge danger because we can individually become very egotistical we're part of the one true church everybody else is stupid and nobody else can have a valid relationship with God unless they're part of this particular group as well uh, it demeans what God is doing in other people who are in other places, other places um, denominationally or culturally, um, and it lifts us up. It lifts, lifts the individual or the group up above others. And so arrogance rather than tenderness, um, demanding um, respect rather than serving others, it, it does um, all of these things that are contrary to the example and the teachings and the, and the meanings of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that um, everyone purports to, to, to believe in. But they get pushed to the background and our own uh, individuality or uniqueness as a group goes to the fore. There's a, there's a great story in the, in the Synoptic Gospels where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, "Teacher, we we saw some other people, you know, casting out demons in your name, and we told them to stop it." And Jesus is like, "What? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> this is my paraphrase, by the way." Well, right. <laughs> and just like nobody, nobody who 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 does does something in my name is going to speak against me. You know, uh, it's a very interesting story that. Was e has always been easy to forget if you're working within a framework of having to be the one right structure. It is that the the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the risen Christ is not owned by a church. Um, if it could be owned by a church, then it would be an idol and it would not be worth uh, worship, worshiping at all. And that's the one of the other uh, dangers is that it can easily become... Um, let's see, what's the word? Um, not spoken out loud, but kind of implied. implied. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, it quickly can become an implication that in order to be okay with God, however you see that, or to the, the only way to, to have salvation is to be part of this one true, whatever it is. And so then in some ways you are holding God's action hostage by basically saying God can only act through this body. Um, what God wants uh, is only what we want. And so it really does become a worship of, of ourselves or our structure. And assuming that we alone, because we're so right or true or whatever, um, are the ones with those words or actions or beliefs that bring salvation. Yeah, I think these these strong theological systems do kind of form uh, strong communities that have a, uh, this, this very carefully protected sense of identity. And, I mean, someone could argue well, that's a good thing. The, the problem is that then the system that, you've, that humans have created – out of bits and pieces of scripture and tradition and experience and so on, the system becomes the worship object. And any way you slice that, certainly from biblical terms, that's that's the description of an idol. Um, so it's it's possible to to say instead what what I want to want to do is I want to be as faithful to the Jesus story as I can be. And that I recognize this this Jesus story has a, a large relational component to it. It's not about just a bunch of ideas. And so um, there's a relational side, there's a communal side to it, and there's my desire to live as faithfully as I can by that story. That's that's different from saying I have the one true system. If you're not if not buying my system somehow you you are outside the pale. Yeah, you don't have access to God. But that idea is so intoxicating, though, isn't it? I actually remember when I was a child um, growing up in Kansas, our pastor was an older gentleman, and 
I remember him in a sermon sharing about a dream that he had. And it was about airplanes. And all of these airplanes were flying at this really low altitude, except for the RLDS church, which was flying at this greater altitude, a much higher altitude. And the idea that, you know, because we were flying higher, we knew more, we were, um, we were better than. And, and I'm going to quote my friend Monica in here in Salt Lake Con- Congregation, who likes to quote Nadia Boltz Weber, who says, you know, every time you draw a line in the sand, Jesus is on the other side of it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> which is a great quote, you know, but once you draw that line in the sand, right, it's like, we're better, we're over here, then that's when Jesus steps over, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just, it just sounds like when you, when you think you know everything, that's when you realize you actually don't know anything. Right. And that's one of the problems for our denomination of becoming so one is so focused on being the one true church is that it it forced us to have to um, focus on and defend Joseph Smith Jr. Because if we were the one true, then every part of our story had to be immaculate. It had to be perfect. And so we could only look at one way of describing our beginnings. We could only look at one way of um, understanding who Joseph was and what he did. Uh, Otherwise, it would cause everything to crumble because Mm -hmm. the one true had to have the perfect beginning. Mm -hmm. And so it was like it's a trap as well when you are the one true you have to defend everything and you can't <laughs> you can't be a group of sinners following Jesus <laughs> you have to be uh, you have to have it all right and you have to then protect mm. what you see as an original vision right um, and that anything that moves away from quote the original vision must be wrong even if it's even if it's a, a more appropriate unfolding of that. So that's it's a real trap. You mentioned, Carla, the idea of the one true church or the one true something is an intoxicating idea. Mm. That's a great image, I think. And let me let me push back my historical clock even way farther now and say that I, this is something I learned from New Testament scholar uh, Luke Johnson. The idea that there's this one singular ultimate absolute truth is actually not a biblical idea at all. It's a Greek idea. It's it's a Greek philosophical idea. And Christians have, like, for centuries, constantly taken this philosophical idea and overlaid it on Christianity, when in fact, if you all you have to do is say, gee, why do we have four Gospels and not one? (laughs) And why are there two creation stories in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and not one creation story. The biblical authors were were far more comfortable with multiplicity and plurality of meaning than the Greek philosophical tradition was, and yet that tradition has been used to interpret Christianity for centuries in a way that then creates this idea that there's a one true, pure original that you have to hold and get back to and protect, when in fact it it's there's so many dangers tied up with it and it's not even really a very biblical idea to start with. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. It is interesting. So, I mean, you guys are kind of both alluding to um, moving into kind of a community of Christ um, mm. part of this podcast. So let's let's talk about it. When and how did community of Christ let this idea go? I mean, I mean it was it was hard and it was painful, and um, so. I think part of it has to do with us taking our blinders off when it came to Joseph Smith Jr. But, but what else had to happen in order for us to decide that there was truth? There's a lot of truths. Well, I think that some of it was out of necessity. We talked a little bit um, in the one about the three eras of how, as the church was being pulled into new areas, we didn't know how to talk about. Christ, how to bring Christianity to people who didn't have a, an idea of a single God. 
and how our church members and our leaders were learning from other Christians. And in we had been so good about creating boundaries of fear for our members. You know, you didn't want to go to another church, another denomination, because your faith might be weakened. You didn't want to marry somebody outside of the faith because you'd be unequally yoked and your faith would be weakened. And, um, you know, so there was all of these things that we created fear about interacting with other Christians. And, and yet in this situation in different, different countries in Japan and Korea, we're learning from other ministers and experience shows us, tells us, and the spirit bears witness that these are people whose sense of call is as real as our own, that God is at work in them, and that some of the things that we have have come to know about God or about Jesus or about the Spirit is is deeply rooted in them as well. And we and no longer can we say, you know, we're the only ones who have some kind of authority. So that's one of the things is exposure and interaction and um and maybe newly opened eyes to what God is doing in the world. So another thing that happened, and this was in the 1960s, is that the, the church, RLDS church leaders became aware of these various issues and problems and started seeking, seeking guidance from other Christians here in the United States. And so... In 1967 and 68, there was a series of meetings called the Joint Council Seminars in which RLDS leaders invited three theologians from a Methodist seminary to come and, in in our church's words, help us enter the 20th century. Now, this is 1967, by the way. <laughs> so, um, and and learn, learn Christian history, not from this narrow apologetic uh, framework that we'd had, and learn New Testament, not from this narrow apologetic framework, but what's what can scholarship tell us about these? And so I'll take you to the year 1968 when the reunion material, reunions are our adult like family church camps, um, 1968, this book was used for reunions called Body of Christ, written by a young adult who had some seminary training. His name was Harold Schneebeck. And in this book, Harold Schneebeck argues that he, he very clearly lays out that we cannot look to the New Testament for a model of how the church eternally is supposed to be. Because if you look at the New Testament historically, what you see is that there never was an original church. There was early Christian communities connected to Jesus, and these communities Evolved. They're, yeah, they're, they're different from each other. Yeah, their their structures and forms differed. They changed through time. The church, the church's form and structure changed to meet new contexts, new cultural settings, and so on. And so that book made it impossible for us to say, "Oh, we have elders, deacons, teachers, priests." See, I can proof text this from the New Testament. And the early early Christian church had these too, because no. <laughs> There was no such thing as an early Christian church that had all of these offices and structures. Um, they they evolved and changed uh, as Christians met new cultural settings. So that book was really revolutionary and raised a lot of questions then for church members about, well, gee, if we if our structure is not the original structure, what what does it mean for us to be a Christian church? Maybe we need to look elsewhere. Another another thing that was happening in that same time period is that there's a lot of changes socially. So one of the other um, temptations, dangers maybe of the one true church is that, yes, there's the sense that we're the only ones with authority, the proper authority. We're the only ones who have the proper sacraments. We're the only ones with the proper set of beliefs. And then you start adding other things onto that too. You start adding on, we're the only ones who are uh, living appropriately. And so there was a lot of 
rules about social kinds of things. And so I think back to the old preaching charts from like the 1920s and earlier that, you know, explicitly say no card playing, no dancing, you know, no revelry, all of these things. Boring. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, and so that was one of those temptations is that you not only say you have the right beliefs, but now you're going to tell everybody what is the right way to live their lives, all the aspects of their lives. And that really started being challenged in the 60s with uh, a whole generation who is questioning the structures around them. And they're saying, well, why can't we dance? What? How is that evil? Um, and, and challenging some of the, um, the social laws about um, racial relationships and um, questioning why there's poverty and why there is um, so, such inequity and how can that be justified by church bodies. So there's, there's all of that happening too. And um, you, you begin to see within the church um, and even at Graceland, oh my, um, dances and even what? Dances, yeah, I know, <laughs> and in the church, and uh, maybe even bingo. That was another one of those things. You don't play bingo because that's what the Catholics do, and so that it's very close to gambling. And you know, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, so the funny. Catholics know how to have fun. <laughs> right. So, so you know, when 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 Pink sings, what part of party don't you understand? For about 120 years, we didn't understand any part of that. <laughs> it sounds like it. I mean, and, and let's be honest, like the second that a church starts saying, this is what you can do, this is what you can do, is the second that they're already outdated because somebody else has already thought about something else that they probably right. shouldn't be doing. So, the if yeah. man, that's people a, are very creative. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, that's about, that turns religion into behavior control rather than keeping it grounded as first and foremost a relationship built on grace and love. And that's that's another thing that was helping right. Community of Christ, RLDS, move away from the one true church pattern is that we increasingly began to understand grace, grace and that God's God's relationship to us is always prior to our, our best thoughts and actions. God has sought us out, claimed us before we could even respond to that. That's God's goodness and grace at work. So we can't earn... God's reward. We can't earn God's love. We can't earn God's acceptance because those are the gifts that God already has given, and that um, by by thinking that even well, being the one true church is in a way is a kind of works righteousness. Right? You're doing everything right. You're part of the one true, and so in some ways you are undervaluing mm-hmm. the gifts that God has given us in in Jesus, in Jesus' life, in Jesus' teachings, in his life, in his resurrection. Um, so, you know, I think there was a, a growing awareness that there was more, there could be a whole lot more in our relationship to God besides being a good member of the church. Um, and that there were whole new depths emotionally, intellectually, spiritually that were there and that, um, that we could begin to accept and access. Um, and, and, and they were unconnected with whether or not we were the one true church. Right. So it sounds like it's not only damaging to think that you're the one true church that holds all truth, so on and so forth, but it actually holds you back from... It limits. Yeah, yeah. it limits your discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really does, because you think you've already arrived, right? And so there's no need to go deeper and um, more sincerely into your relationship with God, because you've already achieved what needs to be achieved. Yeah, and you're not able you're not able to do self criticism inside oh, of that framework. True. You know, it's like I, I in some ways being a quote one true church and being a prophetic church are oxymorons. They don't fit together because a a prophetic people will always be looking for new and better ways to respond to God's call in the world. 
and will also be unafraid to be critical of where they've been. Um, but if you're the one true and are protecting an original idea or model, you, you, you can't say, you know, we were totally out to lunch on this particular thing. Um, <laughs> so, but I, I think, I think we should both add here that once this deconstruction process started in the 1960s, mm. it was going to put community of Christ RLDS into a kind of wilderness zone for, for about, about, <laughs> about 40, 40 about 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, like you said, Carla, if, if you've been intoxicated by the idea that you're the one true, mm-hmm. and then through a variety of ways you learn, actually, no, that is not a, that is that is based on wrong assumptions. It's not helpful spiritually. It's not good theologically. We cannot be the one true. Then you have to answer the next question. So why should we be at all? Right. And so right. it 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 has taken us a while as a community to come up with really viable answers to that. And I'm, I'm excited by the answers we have come up with to that, which will someday be deconstructed in favor of other ones. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that the later on there'll be a podcast about maybe this podcast to be like, Oh my gosh, those people were idiots. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. Uh, I kind of want to, Oh, go ahead. No, I say we anticipate that though. We also anticipate we'll be dead by then. So well, thank goodness. <laughs> Uh, I kind of want to move on to a, a different type of topic that definitely relates to this. Um, we all know, or maybe our listeners don't know, but I'm a Kansas girl, moved to Utah. And um, Utah's a, a different kind of animal completely is what I've learned. And since I've been out here, a community Christ bishop here in Utah, I have heard the word apostate more in the last eight months than I've ever heard it in my entire life. And so, I mean, can we talk a little bit about the word apostate or apostasy? Like, why would somebody call me that, <laughs> for instance? Yeah, and um, what's the what's the point of doing that? Well, yeah. I, I would say one of the well, from my experience growing up in the church that you were describing at at the beginning, um, as what you remember growing up, as far as spending so much time um, identifying how others aren't what we are and how we are something more complete. Um, Often the the quickest way to uh, make someone not a threat was to call them apostate, was to say you are outside of the realm of, of my one true truth. And that way uh, makes you not a danger to the individual um, if you're called an, you know, if someone's calling you an apostate, then you're, then it's their way of saying you are, um, you are so far outside of the realm of the truth that, uh, I don't have to see you as a threat. I don't have to take you seriously. Um, that's not the original meanings of apostate, but it became kind of a working, uh, a useful tool, at least with, within, uh, within, RLDS circles. So you're saying I shouldn't wear it as a badge of honor out here in Utah. (laughs) Well, maybe. (laughs) It's it's really an interesting thing, but it is made, it's something to distance. It's something to dismiss. It's it's a tool to say you are outside of the realm of my rightness. Um, To to make, to, yeah, to diffuse who you are and what you may say. Yeah, it's kind of like a, Sounds like a boundary marker, mm-hmm. you know. I I don't know if this is true in LDS circles, but certainly in our LDS circles for for ages and ages, our missionaries taught about an event they called the apostasy. And this was all in the one true church paradigm. They believe the true church was restored to earth in 1830. And so when did the original church disappear? And they used the term the apostasy to describe the time when they believed the original church started by Jesus uh, disappeared from the earth. And in old RLDS theology, that was identified with the year 570. <laughs> that five, 570, after, after the year 570, there was no longer any vestiges of the original church, and it wouldn't be, dis- wouldn't be restored until uh, for 1260 days, which they got from the book of Revelation, and they interpreted those to mean years, so 
1260 added on to 570 would mean that the church was restored in 1830. So they they took their belief that they were the one true original church restored, which means then that everybody else is wrong, and they historicized it into a story about when the original church disappeared. And so um, I'm not sure that was going around in Joseph Smith Jr.'s time at all, but but certainly the idea that other Christians were connected to an apostate, apostate, yeah, apostate churches or apostate forms of the church. That's that has some early restoration roots. Um, so that's pro- part of where it comes from in the tradition. But you know, it, it's it was typically used like Charmaine was describing it as a a way to say, I'm inside, you're standing outside. I think the word apostasia in Greek literally means standing away from. Hmm. So. So you have you stand away from because you've walked away from the truth is kind of what's what's behind the word. So that is um, so interesting. I you know I'm all for math and religion. I am one thousand percent behind that. But why in the world did they come up with a number five seventy? Is it just because five seventy plus twelve sixty equals eighteen thirty, or no, was there no, some event? It's really, it's really, it's the other way around. It's because 1830 minus 1260 equals 570. Yeah, that's good. So if if the the church, their assumption was that the church was restored in 1830, and this number from Revelation said, you know, that the the woman was taken up, the church. um, Taken into the wilderness. Into the wilderness, and then would be gone for 1260, so... So yeah, it's starting backwards actually. It's and it's subtracting that. And so then there must have been something that happened in 570 that was so terrible that the the you know the that the church as it should have been just was um, totally distorted. How and, interesting. I mean, do you think the people who lived in the year 570 are like, listen here, people, do not blame this on us. It's your math, <laughs> not ours. I think well, this and, is funky math, actually, well, is what it is. And the, and thing, the, the funny thing is, is that when you go back and you look at 570, there's not some great, terrible thing that happens within Christianity at that point. So no. you'd have you'd have a hard time proving it. I mean, there are some people who will pick out one one you know one item that happened in that time period. And say, well, that must have been it. That must have been it. But it's, yeah, it's 570 is really, it just happens to be your, what you get when you subtract. <laughs> but but notice again the assumption behind this is that there was an original perfect blueprint and that people messed it up and that Joseph Smith got it right. And this, this is an assumption that Community of Christ rejects. This is not a, this is this assumption has no historical basis. It's bad theology too, and so um, we don't we just simply don't hold to it anymore. Um, we say that our ancestors taught what they knew, and they knew they thought they knew that. But we're we, <laughs> we we're willing to be a bit more humble. Yeah, and we just simply can't can't uh, can't. Uh, claim that particular view anymore no i've already had bad dreams about like someone going back to the year 1977 and saying that's when the apostasy the second apostasy started because carla long was born or something (laughs) like this like this is what i'm feeling is going to happen very soon (laughs) so add 1260 on to 1977 come up oh man we're in trouble (laughs) Well, this has been an excellent conversation. I have really appreciated um, hearing more about this because, I mean, it really was something that was kind of out um, as I was growing up and, and, um, you know, like in my formative years, I didn't really hear that much about it. And and I do hear more about it um, nowadays. So I really appreciate these ideas that you've discussed, and, and I can't wait to talk to more people about it. So are there any closing thoughts that you have about the One True Church or apostates or anything like that? Um, yeah, I think I have one one other thought, and that is to say that the question maybe for Community of Christ today is what does it mean for us to be faithful to the message of Jesus. That's more important than whether we represent an original blueprint or not. 
except that the message of Jesus would be as close as we could get to anything like the original. What what was Jesus about, and what does it mean for us to be faithful to that? And you know, we have picked our, our community has picked up again and again on Jesus's uh, inaugural sermon according to Luke in the fourth chapter of Luke. You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. The the message of of spreading the peace of Christ, the justice of God and of the kingdom of God. I mean that that being faithful to that is is our mission. Not trying to to uh, pre, you know recreate something some mythical thing from the first century. Right. In other words, if we can. Um let go of the focus of being the one true church, then we can clear the decks so that we can live out Christ's life instead of being self, you know, self-focused and preoccupied about our rightness, but can be honest about our, um, our weakness and yet our deep desire to, to follow Christ and to, to with Christ's help and the spirit's presence, um, do the things that Christ did in the world that, that what God's will in the world is might have more room instead of um, our own image of ourself taking up all that space. And that, that can allow us to be good partners with our ecumenical friends, with our Roman Catholic friends, our Lutheran friends, our Presbyterian friends, our Methodist friends. And, and even in interfaith contexts, working with people from other world religions to create a different kind of world. So we, it really, it's, it's really important for us to claim what Charmaine's describing there. Yeah, it doesn't separate us from people. It it connects us and unites us with others. Yeah, absolutely. Both in our, our common rootedness in the Christian tradition, uh, ecumenically, but also in our belief that God is about something for the whole world. And... Uh, and we're not the only ones that have pieces to that, that God's at work in all kinds of ways. So I, I think if, if people wanted to read more, at least from a historical point of view, um, the third volume of Mark Shearer's three-volume history, Journey of a People, can describe in more detail some of the things that Community of Christ went through in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s that has helped uh, help re- reform us, recreate us as a different kind of church. That's a, a place historically you can go. Could you talk about the democratization of America, the book? I mentioned that uh, Nathan Hatch's book, The Democratization of American Christianity, is a wonderful study of the, the Second Great Awakening. And he, he also includes in that his own analysis of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon within that context, which I think is a, a lovely a lovely very context-based analysis. Um, you know, as with all historical books, it's got its own issues and flaws, but it's a really fine, a really fine book to understand the milieu out of which the Restoration Movement came. So those are a couple of other places people can go for reading. That's very helpful. Thank you again, Tony and Charmaine, for being part of this podcast. I always, I say this every time, I think, but I always learn so much from you guys. And again, you know, I don't, I don't really care if the listener here learns anything. I've learned a lot. So I appreciate your time and, and um, your efforts in this and, and your words and your thoughts. I, I, I just really am glad that there's a place that we can go to learn more about this kind of stuff. So thank you again. Well, we thank you and thank you for your, your really good searching questions and relevant questions to, to what people are wondering and, and experiencing your whole question about being being called apostate is uh, that's a very relevant question because of what it does to us, to to the speaker and to the one who's receiving that. It's that's um, to be able to put it, let it go is going to be really important. Yeah, yeah. Well, we appreciate the chance to to share and look forward to another time. Absolutely. The views expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official views of the Latter-day Seekers team.
or of Community of Christ. The music has been provided by Ben Howington. You can find his music at mormonguitar.com. Charmaine, you use the words unequally yoked, and I almost made a joke about an unfair breakfast. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I believe I've been unequally yoked here. 